Welcome to Risking Enchantment, a podcast about art, beauty, and the Catholic faith. Hosted by Rachel Sherlock. Hello and welcome to Risking Enchantment. For this week's episode, you've got myself, Rachel Sherlock, and joining me once again is Phoebe Watson. Hello! It Two in a row after being missing for so long. I know, it's to make up for missing all of the autumn. <laughs> It's wonderful to have you here to chat and we are recording this on Gaudate Sunday. So we are in the midst of our Christmas preparations. Both of us are going home for Christmas soon. So our Christmas preparations for the flat start a little bit early so that we get at least a little bit of pre-Christmas in the flat. Yeah, we don't feel bad about it though. <laughs> no, and our tree is up and it's, it's a, a lovely time of year. And I think we're kind of conscious this year I'm sure it's different for listeners the world over, but obviously last year uh, we had a very different Christmas to normal. Uh, Things with the pandemic looked very different to how they do now. But honestly, I think this year it's a mixed bag. For some people, it will be a return to normalcy that they get to go back to the types of Christmases that they had before. For others, I think maybe a little more along our lines, there's still quite a bit of restrictions in place. We're still kind of anticipating uh, a return hopefully next year we're very lucky at least so far it looks like we'll be going home to see our families but we have missed out on things like Christmas concerts and even going out and seeing lots of friends in the same way so it's still looking a little bit of a different Christmas and I think because of that it's kind of a nice time to reflect on what does the celebration of Christmas look like when it's properly done? Obviously outside of whatever situations we're going through at the moment, but just in a more general way, what does it look like when we as Catholics truly celebrate Christmas? Yeah, we're not going to talk about the pandemic anymore. Don't That's worry. done. It's done. Yes, don't worry. We're moving on from, from that. But I think, you know, just yeah, to acknowledge fair. it and then move into a happy Christmas space and talk about that, that true celebration of Christmas. And I think the thing that I most wanted to talk about is this sort of glorious paradox that I've been exploring lately, which is the, that both humility and extravagance are proper parts to the Christmas celebration. And I love everything to do with paradox when it comes to Christmas. I was saying to Phoebe, I think we're going to be referencing Chesterton a bunch in this podcast. That's not like us at all. Not not, not unusual at all. Uh, but I think he is the master of paradox and hence he is the master of Christmas. I do feel like that's the reason he gets Christmas so well is because he gets this wonderful sense of paradox. And so the paradox... This paradox of like humility versus extravagance. I think it's funny how in some ways the humility side, especially for Christians, is so much easier to associate with the the principles of Christmas and the ideas of Christmas that like the the lowly manger and all of those things. Um, And it's a lot harder for us to live, (laughs) Uh, especially for those of us who are lucky enough that the kind of general costs of Christmas are not a huge burden that it, you know, I, I am very cognizant of the fact that that's not the case for everyone, but for, for at least a good good amount of us that Christmas may be a time of spending more money, but it's not necessarily, like it's a celebration. It's, it's, it's easy to indulge in all of the shopping and all of the different, like we said in other years, maybe like going to different events and, and parties and, and seeing lots of people. And obviously this like classic modern problem of consumerism and Christmas that, the humility is harder to live, but easier to associate with the ideas of Christmas. Yeah, I think it's what gets talked about a lot more um, because it is so countercultural to the consumerism. Yeah. Whereas I think like that, like you said, the extravagant side of it can almost seem like it's this corporate commercial imposition on what Christmas actually is. And I I think I really want to make the case for this podcast that extravagance is also proper to the celebration of the season. And I want to be very careful about that. We will, it only makes sense when you truly understand humility. It's not about what we're saying, this, this corporate commercialization, but that there is 
a sense of abundance and a, and a sense of exuberant celebration that is proper to the season. Yeah, and that that extravagance isn't about spending a bunch of money on something. Mm-hmm. That's not what we're talking about in extravagance, but rather, yeah, like you said, that exuberant overflow of joy and how we show that to the world. Yeah, and what really sparked this was all the way back in January, after having a very topsy-turvy Christmas of my own, <laughs> yeah. um, Phoebe and I spent a bit more time kind of celebrating Christmas after Christmas because, like I said, thing, things got a little bit crazy for me. So And yeah, at that time we hadn't even been able to put our Christmas tree up before we went home, so we'd had to decorate it in January. <laughs> yep. And so we did a sequence of like Christmas nights in the flat to ourselves And one of the nights we set out like a a whole charcuterie board and we got dressed up and we watched on Netflix. And I think we mentioned this on the podcast. We watched The Nutcracker, which was the, I think, the the Royal Opera Ballet performance of it, the one that's in London every Christmas. We're not (laughs) lucky enough to have actually seen that in person, but we were lucky. We'd previously actually gone to the cinema to see it. Yeah, Um, to see a screening of it. A screening of it. And then... We'd seen it come up on Netflix and we're like, let's watch that again. That was amazing. And I love it. I really love watching it. I think it might still be on Netflix, but I really love watching it because of its ostentatious, sort of over the top exuberance, extravagance in the way that it does the staging, in the costumes. I think there's something about ballet in particular that's so finessed and so at the top of its game that it is automatically a kind of extravagance in and of itself. But the theatre that it's in is that like classic red and gold trimmed kind of space with chandeliers. Like it just captures all of the most stereotypical glittery Christmas decadence that I think is maybe more associated with the past now but still really resonates and I was watching it and loving it and thinking to me this feels like it says even though like the Nutcracker I don't think is a particularly good Christmas story um not particularly religious it's not particularly um it's not a particularly good story for stop (laughs) no it's mainly an excuse to dance at least in the ballet form and to show off a party exactly but not about the story itself, but this experience of watching this performance, to me, felt like it was saying something about Christmas. And that was about entering into like a magical, glorious, wonderful world. And I wanted to just take the time when we came around to this Christmas to reflect on on how does that fit in with our understanding of Christmas, especially given our our knowledge of the humbling and the humility aspect of it, and, and seeing how those two things kind of work themselves out in in our celebration of Christmas. Yeah, because I think that that like, wonder of Christmas is something that the consumerist world still tries to buy into a lot as well. Mm-hmm. And we can then feel disenchanted from it um, if it's like, you know, like Santa's Grotto or something and it can feel like it's taken over by the commercialism. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas we're just trying to argue that its proper place is with the humility of Christmas. That yeah. the two actually come from each other. Yeah, exactly. And so I think for this podcast, we're going to split it into two sections. We're going to talk first about the humility, because like I said, I think you can only truly engage with the extravagance once you understand the first moment of humility that that comes with Christmas. Um, so we'll talk about the humility, and then we'll 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 make the case for extravagance. <laughs> yeah, and then like as we talk about humility, we don't mean this kind of false notion of humility that's like not celebrating, not giving, like a strip back to refusal to enter into the season. It's not a minimalist like humility, but rather look, reflecting on the humility of God and his generosity. Yeah, it's so much more than what gets packaged and sold as like humility. Because I think that's the false notion of both of those versions. Like both false versions are ones that like corporations are trying to sell to you, whether it's buy this really expensive type of Christmas decoration that's so stripped back that it's almost like, oh, I don't care about Christmas. You know what I mean? There's like, (laughs) that sounds dreadful. (laughs) Um, Or that like even this like 
false posturing of like Christmas doesn't matter or like I'm so far above all of this like hurly-burly of Christmas like that's not true humility and equally as we've already mentioned this over commercialization over emphasis on prestige when it comes to presents or or excessive waste like that has no part in Christmas as well that like both of those are the false notions and so now we want to try and establish if those are the false notions what are the true ones and so I guess we'll start like what a humble Christmas really means and like you said it all comes down to this amazing fact of God the creator of all the entire world and the universe and beyond humbling himself to become man and not only become man but become the most humble being among manhood as well this this babe in a manger with with no home even yeah to become a homeless child. So we have a Chesterton quote. You'll be amazed to hear. Yeah. Um, Chesterton's written some lovely poems, and this is one of them. And it's called The House of Christmas. There fared a mother driven forth out of an inn to roam. In the place where she was homeless, all men are at home. The crazy stable close at hand, with shaking timber and shifting sand, grew a stronger thing to abide and stand than the square stones of Rome, to the place where God was homeless and all men are at home. I love that. It's part of a much longer poem, but I just, that that key sentence of like, God made himself homeless so that in, in reaching out to us as humanity, we might find a home in him. And that reflection, I mean, I think that that reflection is enough for fodder, enough fodder for all of Advent and all of Christmas. We can just stop there. We're done. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But yeah, I think that really encapsulates where the humility of Christmas comes in, that it is about appreciating and entering into that mystery of God's own humility and what that means for us and how we should respond with an a kind of awestruck humility like the shepherds coming and and the the three kings coming to the manger or coming to the child Jesus that our proper response is to to recognize that how far God has gone out of his way to reach out to us yeah and to be willing to like bend low to enter the stable door um i'm sure that's another poet Chesterton poem but yeah, I think yeah. so. Um, um, and, you know, I think, again, like that, that sense of the, the paradox of God's power entering into that weak and, and mortal being. And I, I have a quote here from St. Augustine, which really kind of underscores how we should be amazed at this fact of Christmas. This is not something that we should skip over just because we've heard away in a manger a thousand times. And the the problem is it's so easy to skip over as well. Yeah, exactly. Um, You take it for granted. You heard your Christmas story when you were a kid. You did the nativity play and now you're done. Like now you just need to buy your presents and make your Christmas cake and make sure nobody cries on Christmas Day or whatever it is, you know. Um, And whereas St. Augustine has this great quote that really grounds you in in this mystery. He says, Man's maker was made man, that he, ruler of the stars, might nurse at his mother's breast, that the bread might hunger, the fountain thirst, the light sleep, the way be tired on its journey, that truth might be accused of false witnesses, the teacher be beaten with whips, the foundation be suspended on wood, that strength might grow weak, that the healer might be wounded, that life might die. That's such an amazing like clash of paradoxes. Mm-hmm. I mean, no, no wonder Chesterton found his way to Catholicism. I know. <laughs> um, and I think it's such a profound mystery that does get lost in all of the busyness, all of the commercialism, all of the to-do list, all of the all of the joy and celebration as well. It's not all just bad things, but that like taking the time to appreciate that mystery means taking a step back 
from our world. And I always think of that amazing poem by Patrick Havnard, Advent, which opens, we have tested and tasted too much lover. Through a chink too wide, there comes in no wonder. But here in the Advent darkened room, where the dry black bread and the sugarless tea of penance will charm back the luxury of a child's soul, we'll return to doom the knowledge we stole but could not use. Yeah, and I think we've spoken a little bit before about the importance of fasting before feasting and that kind of taking time to reflect in the darkness, which allows us to approach the crib and to find Christ in the manger and in the poor and humble. Yeah, and I think that's where where that kind of response of, of withdrawing, of giving up that we've definitely lost like like you said we've mentioned this before but like how to actually enter into advent in a society that insists that you celebrate christmas the month before it happens rather than the month after it happens (laughs) yeah Uh, like one of my friends at book club who's indian was saying that in india they used to give up meat for all of advent mm. and that the thing they would do like on christmas eve then was they come home from midnight mass and have meat. Mm-hmm. But that kind of paradox of sacrifice and then feasting, yeah. which we have lost. Like, we just have. And I think it's a real struggle to try and recapture that while not making it something else on our to-do lists. Yeah, yeah. And I don't think it's a straightforward thing to recapture, but I still think it's an important thing to recapture. Yeah. But yeah, that that sense of stepping back and stepping into darkness but that that's proper to advent when it comes to christmas i think once you actually reach that celebration the appropriate response is then to respond to that huge unthinkable generosity of god with an overabundance of generosity ourselves yeah definitely that it isn't just about being poor and small but then overflowing and taking what you have prepared in joy and being willing to give that to others yeah i think there's a beautiful example of this in little women we've spoken about little women before as well um particularly on our feasting um podcast back in february i think it was our first one back so yeah. yeah february um and there's a scene in it that the four girls give up their christmas breakfast and give it to this poor family and it says that was a very happy breakfast though they didn't get any of it and when they went away leaving comfort behind i think there was not in all the city four merrier people than the hungry little girls who gave away their breakfast and contented themselves with bread and milk on christmas morning that's so beautiful and i think that's really key to to the the actual humility of Christmas. And in that case, we were saying this, like in that story, that family were better off than their neighbours. And so they weren't coming from necessarily totally a place of want. They were going to get a Christmas dinner as yeah. well as this Christmas breakfast. But that generosity to respond to the need needs of others by giving up something for your, something of your own and to do it joyfully and to revel in that joy. Yeah, because it's almost like it's no good if it's not done joyfully yeah. as well. And, you know, I think it's interesting when you think of it like if you were to be totally pragmatic and totally realistic, you would say, well, the starving family just needs some food. They don't actually need your Christmas breakfast. If you have some like bread and cheese in the pantry, that'll feed them type thing. But that comes from a real meanness, whereas they're saying it's like what what God asks for is the, the first fruits, the best things that they have to offer. And that's what they have right then and there is their Christmas breakfast. Yeah, and there's a real beauty in giving not just what is kind of needed or called for, but the best that you can give. Yeah. Um, and also in giving the, that out of poverty um, or out of a place of thriftiness. Yeah, because I think the thing that we want to avoid here is implying that it's important to 
spend heaps of money and even and I, I find it very upsetting just because I think of the way that people put themselves under pressure and put themselves in difficult positions and go into debt over buying things like Christmas presents and I think it comes from generosity and wanting to give their family and their friends the things that they would like or, or that those things they seem important to be able to give at that stage and I'm not at all trying to denigrate how anyone tries to celebrate or tries to mark the occasion but I would just underscore how it's not about a quantity of money and it's not about saying that you should put yourself into financial hardship in order to pay for Christmas presents because I don't think that that's what God is calling for us at that stage but yeah. that and we're not not even saying something like oh you shouldn't give any Christmas presents and you should give all the money to the poor yeah it's it's that interesting balance between the two isn't it yeah um and I think what we would say is that real joy and real love can come from looking to find the presence that you can give even when you're in restricted circumstances or even when you don't have a whole lot to give that there's still ways that we can all find to be generous in all of the ways that we find ourselves poor like I often feel like I'm quite poor in time and so taking the time to spend you know an hour with a friend is the kind of present that is coming out of my own poverty or something you, you know what I mean that like it can look it can look different in a lot of different ways but that humility means embracing the situation that you're in and not trying to replicate what other people's Christmases look like or trying to deny what your Christmas should be like yeah definitely and we're going to go back to Chesterton again um he has this great quote on uh thrift which is that it's from an essay called what is wrong with the world thrift is the really romantic thing economy is more romantic than extravagance Heaven knows, I for one speak disinterestedly in the matter, for I cannot clearly remember saving a half penny ever since I was born. But the thing is true, economy, properly understood, is the more poetic. Thrift is poetic because it is creative. Waste is unpoetic because it is waste. It is prosaic to throw money away because it is prosaic to throw anything away. It is negative. It is a confession of indifference. That is, it is a confession of failure. And I think that's key. I think that really explains much better than I can what, what I would hope to get across, which is that the truly, the truly incongruous thing with the season is waste. And so if you're wastefully indulging in presents that will not be used in a week's time or that aren't thoughtful and are taking up space and are going to get thrown out that that isn't part of the season either. And that we can always look to find the ways to robustly celebrate in ways that are quite humble and thrifty. And those things are so beautiful. Like I think of the paper chains that I used to make as a kid. Those were so much fun. As a scrap wrapping paper. You had to make them out of scrap wrapping paper. (laughs) Um, Or my my friends have sent me beautiful Christmas cards that they made with the potato printing or, you know, just thinking of ways that are meaningful and charming. And like he said, romantic, that there is this inherent sort of that topsy-turvy joy in taking all of these things that maybe like strings of oranges as garlands and popcorn as garlands like these things right. that were were food are now decorations and you know all, all of these great things that are part of the kind of silly joy of Christmas. Yeah there's this kind of turning everything upside down that we're going to talk about later as well. Yeah. Um, but I think for me one of the great literary examples of this thriftiness is um from the Little House in the Prairie series of books, it's the fifth book, um, the, uh, which is By the Shores of Silver Lake. And the Ingalls family at the time are spending the winter in this really isolated spot on the prairie. Like, everybody sensible has gone off. And they're left in the surveyor's house. For, um, and in the run-up to Christmas, the surveyor's house was full of secrets as everyone is secretly making presents for each other. Their gifts are carefully scavenged out of scraps and leftover wool, 
but lovingly made to be as good as they can possibly be. Like, for example, the two older sisters are making mittens for the younger sister and they don't have enough wool. So they make, they're like, oh, we've got three balls of different colours and they make, like, the wrists out of one bit and the the next bit and the next bit. But having thought that out enough that it's not like, oh, they're different colours and different patterns because we ran out. Mm. But having looked at what they had and figured out what they could do with it. Yeah. Which I think is really beautiful. And then in the midst of all this preparation, um, on Christmas Eve, these two travellers arrive that they weren't expecting until spring. And as the girl who's the main character, Laura, is going to bed that night, she whispers to her ma, ma, what about the presents? And her mother whispers back, never mind, I'll manage somehow. And the problem with the presents is that you can't give presents without, if the two guests don't have presents. Mm. Um, Or rather, they don't feel like they can do that. Mm -hmm. Because it's counterintuitive to the spirit of Christmas, that you're welcoming these people into your home, and yet giving gifts to each other and not to the person who's joined you. And yet when they sit down to dinner... Um, this like carefully prepared dinner of a Christmas feast that is what you know like what they've been able to prepare, prepare out of what they have um, there's a present on everyone's seat and it's you first Mrs Boast said Ma for Mrs Boast was company so Mrs Boast opened her package in it was a lawn handkerchief edged with narrow crochet lace Laura recognised it It was Ma's best Sunday handkerchief. Mrs. Boast was delighted and so surprised that there was a gift for her. So was Mr. Boast. His presents were wristlets, knitted in stripes of red and grey. They fitted him perfectly. They were the wristlets that Ma had knitted for Pa. But she could knit some more for Pa and the company must have Christmas presents. And I think there's something so beautiful in that act of generosity which is not just to say that the company must have Christmas presents, Mm -hmm. but they must have good presents. Mm -hmm. And that out of their own meagre supply of things, they give the best that they have. Mm. And are willing, the two parents make that sacrifice um, for their guests and for their children, like for the celebration, and make it joyfully. Mm. Like there's no kind of like, oh, I've given up my best Sunday handkerchief, (laughs) because that would ruin the whole thing. Yeah. Um, but just this joy and generosity, despite the thrift, not not despite the thriftiness, but almost because of the thriftiness. Yeah, that's beautiful. I really love that. Yeah. I haven't read those books, but it's making me want to read them. I think the other example that we mentioned was the chapter Dolce Domum in The Wind and the Willows, which I don't think we'll go into, but it's just a wonderful, again, example of arriving at a house that's been closed up for a while and having no supplies and scrounging around trying to get supplies when a bunch of field mice, mouse carolers turn up and everyone must have treats, you know, and that sense of the flurry of like, how, how can we make this work and how can we offer them something? And I think in a world in which we take for granted so much of the, and it's been interesting this year with so many things with like supply chain issues that things that we expect to see in shops just aren't there anymore. Or for us in Ireland, we used to buy a lot of things from the UK and with customs delivery, uh, with custom taxes now since Brexit, we're just not able to go to the same shops that we used to online or buy presents in the way that we used to. And so it is interesting how our modern world is showing these kind of cracks in our expectations of what you can what you can buy at the click of a button. But for the most part, I think most of us are used to living in a world in which whatever we want from the shops will be there in the shops when we want to get it. And so entering into that spirit of poverty that says, how do we live the humility of Christ in this season and how do we approach it in a way that isn't wasteful at the very same time that it is incredibly generous yeah definitely and I think it's also important that that generosity isn't like the company must have Christmas presents the carolers must have treats isn't a pride thing Mm -hmm. that I think we can easily look at that and kind of think that it's a pride thing but that rather it's an overflow of generosity Mm -hmm. that not that this is what they expect of us, but what I expect of myself. Yeah, to be able to accommodate 
the stranger, as yeah. Christ compels us to do, that that open armed reception of of whoever comes across your path, and that particularly at Christmas, that that is reminded to us that we don't want to be the innkeepers that say we don't have any room. Definitely, um, and that willingness to have our lives turned upside down, because I think that's where the extravagance starts, which is the sort of willingness to turn your life upside down, stick a giant tree in your living room, fill it with decorative lights, to make a cake months in advance if you're <laughs> in Ireland or England, our Christmas cakes, that like the the kind of sense of going out of your way to make your life kind of difficult. And obviously it's very fun and very joyful. And I think most people are able to enter into the joy of that, but to take on the challenge of messing up your life for the sake of celebrating the birth birth of Christ. I have this wonderful letter from uh, Ronald Knox. It's just called A Letter About Christmas. And I'm going to quote a good chunk of it, but there's there's still plenty more that you should read. So I would really recommend it. But it starts with him addressing some lady he was talking to who is complaining about having her house turned upside down for Christmas. And he's sort of reflecting on it. And, and this is his response to this to this, I'm sure, very offhand comment by what I presume was a very frazzled woman. So <laughs> um, this poor lady probably got more than she bargained for. <laughs> but he says, that message, reasonably enough, has gone to the head of Christendom ever since. And we find no better way of doing honour to Christmas than by turning things upside down. Everything went wrong from the first. All the best places going to the wrong people, as it were. The ox and the ass nearest to the cradle and the shepherds getting in ahead of the kings and the kings having to ask their way and asking it of of the people who never found it, the inn having no room so that it was left for a stable to contain him whom the world could not contain, all the arrogant topsy-turvydom, in fact, of the Christmas crib. How it puzzled the wise men when they set out to make a calculation in astrology to discover what child the strange star was going to influence and found at the end of their search that it was the child who influenced the star. All the modern paraphernalia of Christmas, presents, trees, crackers, turkey, yule logs, weights and the rest of it has become over-conventionalised, I grant you, and much overlaid with affectation, big business and the cult of the Tudor tea room. But Christmas retains, under all its trappings, its essential note of unexpectedness. Just when you are expecting burglars to prowl about other people's houses in disguise and take things away, you instead, the householder, are expected to disguise yourself and prowl about your own house, putting things there. Instead of waking up to find ladders in her stockings, your small daughter wakes up to find that the stocking itself has become a ladder for Santa Claus to come down the chimney. Just when the boughs should be at their barest, one tree manages to reverse the whole process, burgeons into leaves of flame and fruits of glittering glass. The pudding, which has meant so much more trouble than all the puddings of the year, comes to the table full of careless oversights, thimbles and sixpence, which the most myopic of cooks could hardly have left there by mistake. Everywhere and in all ages, headdress has become a sign of human dignity, can still be a matter of national importance, or why must Kemble be at pains to replace the fez by the bowler hat? But not at Christmas. At Christmas it is expected of the solemnest uncle that he should dress up like a fool, and the angels are too discreet to smile at it. You should admit in the abstract, though it is not so easy to take the right line when you actually come in contact with them, the propriety of all those elaborate practical jokes which the shops sell, booby traps that squirt water at you unexpectedly or black your face when you're not looking. They all keep up the atmosphere of unexpectedness. Of course your house has got to be turned upside down if it is to be a fitting symbol of the world turned upside down and nothing less will do at Christmas. It's great. Yeah, I really love that that sense of of exuberance and joy and, and unexpectedness. Definitely. It's got just such fittingness to it that the introduction to it of like Christ 
turning the whole world upside down and then everything being the wrong order. <laughs> yeah, it's so wonderful. Yeah. And now to go to another Victorian writer, George MacDonald, who I think captures something of what this feasting means at Christmas. At the start of a book called Adela Cathcart, these two travellers are on a train. How happy fires were glowing everywhere. We shot past many a lighted cottage, and now and then a brilliant mansion. Inside both were hearts like our own, and faces like ours, with the red coming out of them, the red of joy, because it was Christmas. And most of them had some little feast toward. Is it vulgar, this feasting at Christmas? No, it is the Christmas feast that justifies all feasts, as the bread and wine of the communion are the essence of all bread and wine, of all strength and rejoicing. I think that with the Ronald Knox is just such a beautiful example of how fitting it is that we feast at Christmas, Mm. that we go overboard, um, but in the right spirit. Yeah, absolutely. That... The feasting of Christmas is a sign of of the generosity of spirit and of the the true joyfulness of it. And I think you were saying as well that it really ties in with the liturgy. Yeah, I think that's something, again, that we talked about in the feasting podcast at the beginning of the year. It's very fitting, by the way, that we're finishing and starting and ending the year with this. Um, But that we talked about how the feast comes as a continuation of the liturgy, that the liturgy, the the two are tied together, um, which I think is also why we should have great masses at Christmas and we should be going all out for the liturgical celebration and then for the Christmas feasting. You have to do the two together for them to be in right order. Yeah, yeah, that your your trip to the theatre should not be more extravagant than your Christmas mass. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I think that's true and that like... We should model our our celebration. And again, like I said, this was something we touched on, but model our celebration on the experience of our, our masses. And I think we do get a sense of this, even, even in the most humble <laughs> of parish churches, even with the inclusion of carols, because there's something so majestic and so uplifting and so um, exuberant about Christmas carols, I find. But that... You know, it it is also the season to take it further and to engage with the ceremony and the the kind of panache of it all. That I I we we went to our one of our local churches for the feast of the Immaculate Conception this year, and I presume they do it every year. I think I remember it, but I hadn't seen it in a while. They had done up this spectacular altar to Our Lady for the day, and it was covered in flowers, and it was so moving to be sitting there at eight a.m. in the morning with this astonishing array of flowers all set around and and statues of of kneeling angels with with buckets of flowers in their hands lifted up to our lady it was so moving it was so beautiful like chandeliers as well of like they'd obviously pulled everything from around the church to give this one great centerpiece to our lady yeah um, and as you said something so fitting about roses in december like that extravagance of what's hard to obtain yeah there in there in abundance yeah and the same with that that church is a, a franciscan church and just talking about how i think the franciscans do really enter into this paradox as well and the exuberance of their christmas cribs as well that this is an important part of entering into the christmas season are these like big displays of building a whole stable inside of a church you know you kind of don't realize how over the top it is until you take a step back but i wanted to to touch on then this this quote that I have, I think I referenced it once before a very long time ago on the podcast, but it's from C.S. Lewis in his preface to Paradise Lost, of all things. I always find it amazing. We referenced his preface to, was it Athanasius in the previous one on, on the reading of books? <laughs> Quite possibly. Who are the, like, just these these writers are so far above us that they're writing what should be very boring prefaces to quite literary like academic texts and in the middle of it they're just dropping these amazing reflections but he's talking about the middle english word solemne and what that means in terms of solemnity and uh, the solemn celebration 
and why it is something that we should engage with. I think in particular, as Catholics, we see it in the liturgy, but that it is proper to all of the parts of our life because all of our lives should should be in some ways re- be reflecting the liturgy. So he says that this solemnity is, is the festal, which is also the stately and the ceremonial, the proper occasion for pomp. And the very fact that pompous is now used only in a bad sense measures the the degree to which we have lost the old idea of solemnity. To recover it, you must think of a court ball or a coronation or a victory march, as these things appear to people who enjoy them. In an age when everyone puts on his oldest clothes to be happy in, you must reawake the simpler state of mind in which people put on gold and scarlet to be happy in. Above all, you must be rid of the hideous idea, fruit of widespread inferiority complex, that pomp, on the proper occasions, has any connection with vanity or self-conceit. A celebrant approaching the altar, a princess led out by a king to dance a minuet, a general officer on a ceremonial parade, a major domo preceding the boar's head at a Christmas feast, All these wear unusual clothes and move with calculated dignity. This does not mean that they are vain, but that they are obedient. They are obeying the hawk age which presides over every solemnity. The modern habit of doing ceremonial things unceremoniously is no proof of humility. Rather, it proves the offender's inability to forget himself in the right and his readiness to spoil for everyone the proper pleasure of the ritual. And I think we have also a marvellous Chesterton quote just to underscore that point. Phoebe, do you want to read it? Sure. But I cannot understand why anyone should bother about a ceremonial except ceremonially. If a thing only exists in order to be graceful, do it gracefully or do not do it. If a thing only exists as something professing to be solemn, do it solemnly or do not do it. There is no sense in doing it slouchingly, nor is there even any liberty. This is combining insolence and superstition, and the modern world is full of the strange combinations. There is no mark of the immense weak-mindedness of modernity that is more striking than this general disposition to keep up old forms, but to keep them up informally and feebly. Why take something which is only meant to be respectful and preserve it disrespectfully? Why take something which you could easily abolish as superstition and carefully perpetuate it as a bore? I think that's wonderful. That's that's, so good. (laughs) That sense of indignance about the whole idea. I think to me that's summed up in like people very resentfully tramping off to Christmas mass for their one mass a year. That like I, I wouldn't ever deny anyone the grace of attending mass, but you know, it's almost like, why do you keep it up if you hate it so much? <laughs> um, and that, yeah, that I think there's a real suspicion nowadays about pomp and ceremony because we we have lost both in the church, I think, and also in our governments and our leadership, the sense of confidence in them or the sense of of like unshakability in them. Yeah, I think we tend to see them only as showing off. Yeah. And that, especially when I think of more secular leadership, that they haven't really earned their right to be to have that kind of pomp. And yet when we do see it, we do love it. Like I am Irish. I don't have a huge sense of what I think the British monarchy and the British royalty should be doing at any given stage. But I certainly like to watch it when they put on a show. (laughs) Um, And that I think there is a sense that we're really craving a, a real sense of this pomp and ceremony um, and that for so many occasions it often is hiding behind that fear that Chesterton mentions, that fear that's dressing itself up as um, as actually being um, a virtue of, of, of humility and that's where that false humility comes into it. Yeah, definitely. And I think it does is that it really under, it underscores why I found watching the Nutcracker so moving because it goes to that exact quote in the in the C.S. Lewis quote that we read out where he talks about 
the the movement and the dance and he says all these wear unusual clothes and move with calculated dignity you know that sense of watching this great performance that isn't at all abashed about how magical and over the top it's being because what it is doing is not for the benefit of the dancers it's for the benefit of the audience yeah it's not afraid to be extravagant Mm -hmm. like even if you think about the size of that christmas tree yeah of like to put on the biggest show you possibly can Mm -hmm. not for yourself but as a gift to everyone who comes yeah and i think that's where it comes in particularly we spoke a little bit about this personally about how do we cultivate our own personal humility while also sort of engaging with the extravagance. And I think in some ways, the extravagance is something that should be offered offered to the society by people who are in a position to be benefactors. Like, I feel like the price of attending these things in person can often be really exorbitant and, and too much for, for a lot of families, especially if they have lots of kids, which is something that we're very much in favor of, you know? That in an ideal world, these kinds of experiences of entering into these extravagant magical worlds that are presented to us for our entertainment shouldn't be so cost prohibitive or it shouldn't be so much the domain of of elite people who have all of the the money in the world to spend on it that in a that we should be working towards a society in which that can be offered to everyone like i was thinking of there's there's a couple of examples of things that i would love to attend there's the the christmas at the harry potter's leaves Levenston studios i would love to see that this year i was heartbroken that i wasn't really able to go to england as much as i might do because castle howard which anyone who's fans of the tv series of brideshead revisited will know as as being used as the location of of brideshead is putting on a huge narnia exhibition this year which looks so amazing and so magical and so wonderful (laughs) and I was just like why am I not there and yet that we're so glad that they are doing these things and that it kind of puts the onus on those of us who can afford to do so to support them so that more of them can be put on yeah um like with how our society is set up at the moment that's the only way we can make sure these things continue to exist even yeah and I do think yeah that there is a sense of saying To me, there is a kind of trend with a a lot of modern things, which is to say, no, the stripped back back version is actually fine and is actually what you want. You know, like I was saying this to you a year ago, which is that if I was going to a performance of The Nutcracker, if it were a community theatre, zero budget kind of thing where they had gotten glitter and pasteboard and that was their main form of decoration, I would still much rather see that in terms of they had gotten everything together that they can like raided everyone's wardrobes and found the best versions of those costumes that they can i would rather attend that than a very prestigious production that had said oh but we're not going to bother with the sets we're just going to express it through just the dance you know yeah (laughs) like i think there's a version of um swan lake Mm. or one of the other um famous ballets that's completely stripped back and we're like no (laughs) I mean, I'm sure if you're you're a dance aficionado, you can really really appreciate that. But I'm just a an, an average Joe, and I like sparkle and I like magic, <laughs> especially for the Nutcracker at Christmas. Exactly that, you know, that entering into this richness of detail and richness of of texture and and all of these things. And just on that, I think it still ties in really well with what we were saying about thrift, because those productions are still thrifted in a way in that they still even the grand the opera house where they've got like a chunk of money to put into this they're still not real crowns yeah like they're still making things as fake as images of things to enhance the dancing and enhance the pop yeah like i'm sure a a Royal Opera House ballet costume is a very expensive item. However, nobody's putting real diamonds on those no. things. <laughs> and I'm sure it is mended a hundred times. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, but the, you're, you're right. There's that sense of of it almost being the facade of, of splendor that actually allows you to enter into splendor. That like, if you do it well enough, that it's not about 
having real gold or having even real velvet, but that if you can manufacture it to or 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 thrift it or create it in a way that makes it possible to run this production every year with like I don't know a hundred different ballet dancers that are ripping and picking at their costumes and a bunch of kids who are probably like running around in them and you know all of all of the all of the mundane realities of what it means to put on a performance of something yeah and it's about evoking that sense of wonder and yeah but the even the idea of that extravagance being for the people is mm. shown through that as well yeah and i think there's a real need in our age for detail yeah. i know that sounds like a strange thing to say but when i think of so much of our architecture and the art art that's produced there's a real sense of like it's it's funny because I know what everyone pictures when they're pitching these things like these architects and these city planners of like these high spec, glossy, minimalist, straight lines, no decoration. And I'm sure there's plenty of people who would like that in, in theory. I, I, I know some of those people that love that design. But even if you like that design, I think you have to admit that the reality rarely lives up to to the artist rendering of it. That they're not doing, they're not painting those images on a rainy Tuesday with like the rain stains coming down the wall or uh, whatever it is. There seems a real sense that we don't need the ornamentation that previous uh, civilizations implemented. And I think... I want to, because I think this comes into, I'm just going to say a little bit about minimalism. I'd like to caveat this. I'm very conscious. My wonderful friend, Chloe, is probably listening and she's a real advocate for minimalism. (laughs) And I think what I, I want to define is when she talks about minimalism, she her house is the most wonderful, cozy cottage feeling that I, I love being in it. And it's everything that you think of like a warm, cozy cottage. But what she means is that she just absolutely doesn't let stuff accumulate. She's really, really picky about not having to maneuver her life around a huge amount of stuff all the time. And so she's very careful about how, how much stuff accumulates in her house. It's not about saying that, oh, I don't want any pattern or I don't want any color or even I don't want any things, but rather a deep appreciation of the things that you do have and the ability to differentiate them from things that don't matter or that aren't as important or that are just taking up space. But with with that caveat in place, I think there has been a real trend lately of minimalism in the sense of bare walls or lacking in pattern or lacking in ornamentation or lacking in like homeliness almost yeah it's really not us is it? it's, it's really not us i as much as i appreciate chloe's approach i will always be more maximalist than that i'm looking around at my dresser where we're recording this and it's covered in christmas cards and prints and little <laughs> little felt mice and and photographs and all of those things um and yeah i just love that sense of richness of detail and i think i think we all deeply need that and we need to be able to experience it in the way that we encounter culture like i'm saying about attending these theaters or like like i said going to these whatever it is that your your country has england is abounding in stately homes or you know <laughs> um that engaging with that kind of richness and extravagance is something that I think is really human to us and really life-giving and that's what I think is so joyful about Christmas it's the time when we almost you well for most people we sort of say to hell with this this stripped back version and let's put up the Christmas tree and put up all the decorations and have this sort of explosion of festivities within our space. Yeah and I think that's also part of what can make the difference between Christmas decorating done well and done badly mm. is that attention to detail. And what we talked about earlier from Ronald Knox is turning upside down, that willing to have decorations that put you out a little bit, mm-hmm. that take up space that you kind of need. You yeah. don't desperately need it, 
but you know you have to maneuver around it i like our my christmas tree at my parents house we we all live in the dining room because that's the room with the fire so it's the only room that's ever warm and so we keep our christmas tree obviously not in the room that's warm we keep it in our sitting room which is not as much used it's pretty much only our tv room um but the other thing that's in that room is the piano and the christmas tree goes beside the piano so every time it's the only time of year i'm ever home to play the piano and i'm always playing it rammed up against this enormous christmas tree that's like <laughs> sticking into the back of me and i'm trying not to knock off the baubles as i'm playing piano <laughs> and there's something wonderful about that yeah definitely i would certainly never suggest that my parents should just get a smaller tree <laughs> that'd be bad for me absolutely in my house 100 percent um and yeah that sense of that sense of being willing to sort of put yourself out in favor of going overboard and having a, like that exuberance, that extravagance that is right and proper to the season. Um, and, you know, it's small thing. It's funny how, to me, small things are the things that make it feel like I'm in this world of rich detail and magic. Like whether it's a string of lights over my bed. So every time before I'm going to sleep, I turn off my light and like, oh, I still haven't unplugged my Christmas lights. And I get that moment of being in my room with just the Christmas lights and that sense of awe and wonder um, and how that's a very humble thing, but it also feels like a very extravagant thing because like, why do I need Christmas lights over my bed, you know? <laughs> but they're so cozy. Exactly. Um, yeah. Yeah. So I think that is our, our Christmas episode. I think so. Um, Is it the Christmasiest episode we've done? I think so. We're not normally organised enough to have a Christmas episode before Christmas. (laughs) I know. Uh, Luckily for all you liturgy purists, I believe this is coming out the week of Christmas. So we're not encroaching into Advent too much with our Christmas discussion. (laughs) We'll just horrify you by talking about how much we have already indulged in Christmas. (laughs) As usual, I... I take Christmas off, which means that um, the the way my schedule works, it means taking January off. And so we'll be back in February. I've already lined up some episodes. I'm really looking forward to them. Am I in any of them? I hope so. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah, so we'll we'll be taking a little bit of a break. But yeah, we'll be back in the new year, probably near the start of February. But in the meantime, we'll be coming to what are we enjoying. But I do want to just take... A moment to wish you all a very happy, a holy, a safe and a joyful Christmas that has that each each of you experienced that wonderful blend of humility and extravagance in the generosity of spirit that characterizes the season. Absolutely. And so, Phoebe, to round us out, what are you enjoying at the moment? I forgot to warn you. You don't you don't have any clue what you're enjoying at the moment. (laughs) I was reading a different George MacDonald book, we've already quoted him, called The Princess and the Goblin, um, which is a lovely read. It's not very Christmassy, but it's a great children's story. And I would highly recommend any of his children's stories around this time of year. Wonderful. I think I will recommend, I've just finished reading Pope Benedict XVI's Jesus of Nazareth, the infancy narratives. It's part of a set of three books he wrote all about Jesus of Nazareth. I haven't read the other two. I know the infancy narratives is kind of like the afterthought that he went back and did. So I understand that the other ones are probably more important. I hope to get to them in the new year because I really enjoyed reading the infancy narratives um, of Christ. And there were some real nuggets of of wisdom and clarifications of this wonderful mystery that we're we're entering into so i would really recommend that it's quite short isn't it it's very short i have an edition of it which i think my mom picked up at a charity shop which is still managing to be short it's i think it's only 230 pages but it's the big print version (laughs) (laughs) which made me giggle every time i was turning a page and it felt like there was only about six words on it Um, so yeah, it's a nice short book. So even when this comes out on Christmas week, there might still be time for you to read it. Um, and then the other thing I just want to say that I've been enjoying is Phoebe and I have been listening to 
audiobooks while painting Christmas cards. It's been great. And I would really recommend it. And the reason I'm going to say this now is because I would really recommend what we did again last January, which was to do this while we were all having Christmassy time at January. And I know it sounds crazy. I'm sort of like a hyper organized person to think about your Christmas cards in January. But if you're anything like me, organizing Christmas cards at this stage is a little stressful and trying to get them out before the particular dates for the cutoff times for them to arrive and all of that stuff. I find it it's a little bit more intense to do it at this time of year. However, if you do it after Christmas and all your decorations are still up and you're trying to think of Christmassy things to do, why not paint your Christmas cards for next year? You get to enjoy all the Christmassiness of it and avoid all the stress because nobody's looking for them. Christmas is 12 months away at that stage. Just make sure you don't lose them in the meantime. Yeah, that is the one key. But yeah, I I would really recommend it. Um, We're listening to, of course, The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe. (laughs) and it's wonderful so those are the things that we've been enjoying at the moment i know in our last episode we asked for feedback the way the scheduling has worked that episode has only just gone up by the time we're recording this one so obviously we're still waiting giving people a little bit of time to get in touch with us we've already had some lovely messages thank you very much obviously if there's anything from this episode that occurs to you do let us know absolutely um and as usual um if you want to be notified when we come back after the christmas break you can sign up to our email list which is at rachelsherlock.com uh forward slash podcast and you can just sign up to our newsletter there um and uh you can follow us on instagram and uh, you can find me on twitter at seeking watson and as i've said before i wish you all a very happy christmas Merry Christmas. Goodbye. This has been Risking Enchantment. Music by Kevin MacLeod. You can follow me on Instagram and Twitter with the handle at SeekingWatson. And you can find out more about me and the podcast at rachelsherlock.com. Thank you and God bless.